Good morning. Good morning. You ready for Song of Solomon? Yes, awesome. What's, what's ironic, here's what's funny, is that the whole time in Song of Solomon, the messages have, I think, largely been about, hey, guys, step up. Ladies, here's what you should look for in a man. And uh, so now, actually, this is going to be one of the first sermons that is really about women. It's about speaking directly to your hearts and to your decisions and encouraging you. And ironically, we have 50-plus women on our women's retreat. And so I have a hunch there'll be a number of dudes who say to their wives, make sure you listen to this sermon. And uh, so my wife and I, um, we do a lot of premarital and marital counseling. And as we've shared with you in the past, um, we've heard, um, we've just kind of heard it all to one degree or another. Uh, And when we have listened to women talk about what they want in a man, there have been a few, I think, attributes that have risen to the top. Um, What does every woman want? Now, again, you could poll 100 women and they'll give you 100 different answers, but if we could boil it down to its core, we would probably say this. Every woman wants a man who is tender, affectionate, engaged, and passionate. Uh, we just boil it down. A man is tender. He's kind, but he's also affectionate. He's not afraid to, to share uh, verbally and non-verbally his affection and love for his bride. Engage. Ladies, do you want a guy who's all there or do you want a guy who zones out and is unattentive, right? You want a guy who's there? Don't say amen because then your husband's going to be like, really? Um, and you want a guy who's passionate. You know, a passionless man um, is, is a hard thing to watch. And so you want a man who is passionate, who's passionate about you and life and his mission and purpose in life. And And uh, what we find with most dudes is we're pretty jacked up. If you've been married to a guy for any period of time, you're going to realize we come to the table with a lot of um, issues. And those issues come from a few places. Number one, um, it could just be the amount of lies we've bought into from culture. Culture tells us lies about what masculinity is, what manhood is, what a husband is, um, what a friend is. And so many of us have bought hook, line, and sinker into a number of these lies. We bring this baggage into um, our marriage. Um, For some of us, it's just been sin. We have sin um, patterns, habits, addictions, and behaviors that we bring to the table. We just have this kind of baggage that comes um, with us. For some of us, it's been past wounds, things that we have done or things that have been done to us that have affected us, that has created probably unnecessary amounts of fear in us. Um, And then finally, we have just general family baggage. Um, My mom and dad are actually here, so this doesn't apply to me. My family was perfect, and there are no flaws. Uh, But everybody else on the planet, you have um, baggage and junk you bring with you, habits you've learned from your mom and or your dad, your brothers and sisters. And so what we have is, ladies, you're getting married to this dude who is bringing tons of baggage to the table. And uh, here's what I know. You can't control the baggage he brings to the table, but there's one thing you can control. You can't control whether or not you add to the baggage. You can control whether or not you create more roadblocks between the man God has given you and the man God wants him to be and the man you want him to be. Um, I do know this, that most women do not want to be the person or the thing that stands between their husband being God's man. You want your husband to rise to the occasion. You want him to be the leader, the provider, the protector. You want him to be pure. You want him to be tender and kind and affectionate and engaged and passionate. Those are the things you want. 
But what we find is that most women do not understand the basics of how a man works. Let me just be really clear. We're not that difficult. There's like three major thoughts that go through a man's brain at any point in time. Um, we're fairly simple creatures, and yet there are some basic fundamentals that if a woman does not get or apply, um, you will create unnecessary subconscious roadblocks in your husband to be affectionate, to be tender, to be engaged, and to be passionate. Now, um, I want to be really clear as we talk about these things, ladies, I just want to help you understand from scripture how men work. On the one hand, on the other hand, I have to look at the guys and say this. Um, no wife will ever fully be 100% perfect and be the woman you need her to be. And our, op our opportunity, our obligation, our great joy is to be tender and affectionate and engaged and passionate whether or not our wife is the woman God has made her to be and acts perfectly. Now, ladies, can you give me an amen on that one, right? Amen, amen. good. Um, we're all broken, and this is why we need Jesus, and grace covers our marriages and our relationships. Now, for those of you who are not new, um, we're in the book of Song of Solomon. Open up with me, Song of Solomon 5, chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 2. Let me create a little bit of context for you. This is a 3,000-year-old song poem written by Solomon um, about his bride, the love of his life. What's ironic is that Solomon is the greatest womanizer in, I think, human history, second to Genghis Khan, and he uh, ended up with a 1,000 women in his life, 700 wives, 300 um, concubines, basically this harem of women that he would have sex with when he wanted. Um, but before he was the womanizer, he was a monogamous lover of this woman. He loved her purely. He loved her with passion. He loved her in a way that brought God much glory. And this song captures a season of his life before he did a bunch of stupid things. Uh, so as we get to this song, what we saw is that it starts off and it shows them while they're dating. And the song follows their relationship from dating to betrothal to their wedding day. And last week, we got to hear a pretty, we'll say, vivid description of their wedding night. Best sermon you've ever heard, right, Ville Church? Yep, amen. <laughs> So what happens now over the next couple weeks is now we're into the actual ins and outs of their marriage. And so the couple today is going to have their first you know, major conflict that's recorded. And then over the next couple weeks, we start to see the legacy that this couple leaves. So this book, this song, it follows them from dating all the way through toward the end um, of their lives. Now, when you have a couple that are as emotional as Solomon and his bride, do you know what is inevitably going to happen? Fights. When you take two emotional people and you put them into a room and you say live together for the next 70 years, they're going to bicker and they're going to fight. This is inevitable. And so we see here is that they are going to have their first real conflict. And here's what I think is an interesting insight into this book. Um, of all the stories of their love, of all of the examples of their relationship that Solomon could have plucked out and put into this verse of the song, this is the one that he felt like made one of the most important points about love, sex, affection, and romance in marriage. So you have to remember, every single scene he's picking out, he believes this scene is going to most show what brings God glory and what a real marriage looks like. And so Solomon plucks out this scene, and this is really their major scene of conflict. And uh, what I want to do, if you look at your notes and your outline, is show you what every man needs. And number one, the first is this, responsiveness. 
Now, in case you think, because the context of this will be in the bedroom, in case you think that I'm strictly talking about sexual responsiveness, I'm not. I'm speaking of responsiveness as a general umbrella um, over a marriage and the relationship between the man and the woman. But let's get to chapter five, verse two. And she starts and she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Now we're going to take our time through this, so let's let's enjoy this text. Um, what is she doing? She is sleeping. You're available. Good. Um, now what's interesting is she says her heart is awake. There are two interpretations of this. Number one, the interpretation is that she's like half sleeping, um, but sort of semi awake and semi conscious. That's possible. The other interpretation, which I think is a little bit more plausible given what we're discussing here, is that she refers to Solomon as her heart. And she says, I was asleep, but Solomon, my heart, he was awake, which it seems is exactly what is happening. And then I love this, a sound. Isn't it so dramatic? Behold, my beloved is knocking. He says to her, open to me my sister my love, my dove, that rhymes, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. Okay, when your husband knocks on the door and it's nighttime and he says, open to me, do we all know what he wants? Are we all on the same page with this, okay? Is he being clear with what his intentions are? The answer is yes, yes. Open to me, my sister, my love. I love this. The word for love here is raya, which is the Hebrew word for love. He does not say, open up my dode or my lover. He looks at her and he says, my, my sister, my friend. And then he gets a little more intense. And here's what he says. My hair is wet with dew or my head is wet with dew. It means this. I've been working. I've been outside. I've been laboring. Um, I am tired. I've had a long day. I'm pretty stressed. And I would love to just be with my wife. Now, I've heard it said, when is a man ready for sex? And the answer is, now. Um, <laughs> some have said it takes a man seven seconds to be ready, and I just think that's an exaggeration for most people that I know. And she's in bed, and she's wondering, are you kidding me? Now, I'll, which is really hilarious because it's literally what happens here. I want to just, I want to call out a lie and then I want to look at her response. Here, here's the lie that the church, I think many of the church have believed that a man's sexual drive is carnal and not spiritual. I mean, God has made a man very differently than he has made a woman. If you don't know this, just open your eyes, okay? Like men and women are made differently, but they're made differently on the inside. And some people have said um, that men, uh, women use sex to get romance and men use romance to get sex plausibly, right? But there's something powerful when the two come together. Even though men have a primary drive for sex, they are deeply, deeply connected to a woman in romance. And biologically, hormonally, what we see is even though women are primarily connected to a man through romance, they are deeply biologically connected to a man through sex. And so these two things come together, and the Song of Solomon has been this story of not just um, lovemaking for the sake of lovemaking, and not just affection for the sake of affection, but showing you in the context of marriage, sex and affection and romance go hand in hand and a marriage is uniquely bound together in this context. But she says this, verse three, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. How could you plausibly put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Let me just translate into modern English for you. I have a headache. I am not in the mood. <laughs> 
Do you know what time it is? Really? Now? Right? And what's funny is that anybody in this room has been married, right? You understand what I'm saying. Because the guy, at some time in your relationship, has been like, could we? And you're like, really? And this doesn't totally mix. So what do you imagine in that moment Solomon feels? Just give you one word. It's rejection. So I, I would still go on record saying that um, the greatest fear of a man is rejection. That there is something about the way a dude is wired that I would rather not do it than do it and be rejected. I would rather not ask than have the plausibility of asking and being rejected. Um, when I was dating Brienne, I told you about the story of Brad. Brad was the guy who introduced my wife and I like this. Michael, I would like to introduce you to your future wife, Brienne. Brienne, I would like to introduce you to your future husband, Michael. And I told you that Brienne proceeded to not be kind to me over a season of months and months and months. And I was definitely not in favor of telling a woman who has been unkind to me for months and months that I liked her. So Brad comes up to me and he says, you got to tell her you like her. And I said, there is no way in God's green earth I am telling Brienne Herbert that I like her. And he says, if you don't tell her, I will do it. And Brad was sick of this. Brad was just watching me long for her and watching her play games. And, and so Brad goes over and he tells her. He actually says, Fueling likes you. Go talk to him. Deal with it. And she's like, for real? Like, Fueling likes me? So I sit down with her and I am n -n nervous. And I'm like, yeah. Well, I mean, I know you talked to Brad. What did, he, what did he actually tell you? I mean, like, tell me the details. Like, I want to know. Like, how far did he actually communicate? And she's like, he said enough. And I'm like, so I think you're, I think you're cool. <laughs> and my, my wife will tell you that there are only a few moments in life when I'm nervous. One of them is when I'm talking to foreigners and, like, they're speaking to me in their foreign language. So, like, when Pastor Craig says, what are you talking about? Come to my house. And I'm like, I freak out, you know? Um... <laughs> No, but if I'm ever in Mexico, right, I know just enough, I know just enough Spanish that I cuss on accident. And every time somebody comes out to me, I get nervous, I start sweating, and I start looking around, and my wife loves, loves it, right? And, uh, and then the other time I was nervous is when I looked at my wife, and I just, I was like, uh, I like you. It took me about, I think, 10 minutes to get out the words. But this deep fear of rejection held me back from doing the thing I knew I needed to do. The majority of men will not step up into leadership. They will not step up with initiative because they do not have the confidence that those they are leading or initiating are going to respond. It's just a, it's a, a part of the sinful subconscious nature of men. When we don't have confidence of response, we don't step up. Now, she says in verse four, my beloved put his hand to the latch. I mean, you hear, it, maybe it's locked. And my heart was thrilled within me. Pause. What came out of her mouth? Words of rejection. What's going on inside of her heart? She does want him. Okay, let's be clear. When I wake my wife up in the middle of the night, is she happy or is she sad? Makes it angry. How's that? Like, let's go a step further, right? Why are you waking me up? Right? And that's just me being loud, okay? That's just me walking into the room. That's me getting up in the middle of the night to do something, right? And so already you have this woman, right? I've yet to meet many people who are at their best, most responsive selves in the middle of the night or late at night when they wake up and the dude's like, hey, could it be? And you're like, what are you talking about? I've been in bed for an hour. Are you kidding me? Like, no human being is being rational in this moment. So can I just tell you, um, some things are going to happen to this woman in this text, and I have an incredible amount 
amount of sympathy for Solomon's bride, okay? Um, She does something that gets taken out of context, that gets blown up bigger than it is. Her heart wasn't even wanting to do that, but it was just the words that came out as she was awakened. And so it says, my beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. Verse five, I arose arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh. Myrrh is a metaphor of sexual arousal. So does she want her husband? The answer is yes. On the handles of the bolt, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. Listen to this verse. My soul failed me when he spoke. When the man spoke, if she had been at her best, she would have exactly known that she has the unique privilege to care for and protect this man who has been so kind to her to, to, the, to this point in the book. But at this moment, she realizes when he's gone, she says, my, my soul, it failed me when he spoke. I wasn't ready. I gave him an answer that did not reflect what I want in my heart. I gave him an answer out of inconvenience because of the circumstance. But as soon as she woke and her senses came to herself, she realized, no, this is my husband. So her response is this, I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And we learned something, I think, really simple, profound, meaningful from her. When you're wrong, change. It's that simple. Most couples dig in, and they fight, and they go at each other. And what she does is she just changes. She says, I was wrong. And she immediately goes to make right what she made wrong in this moment. What we learn from him, he walks away, which is par for the course of how he has treated her in their marriage. Sexually, he has respected her, honored her wishes. Before they were married, she turned him to go and to the turn to the mountains of Bether or separation, leave, um, because I don't know if I can control myself. At every moment, he honored her desires and circumstances sexually, and he does it again here and now. We notice he does not berate her. He does not talk down to her. Um, A typical way that guys deal with hurt is they get what? Angry, right? He doesn't get angry. He doesn't lash out. He uses control. It's said that typically women punish by withholding sex, men punish by withholding affection. I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think she was trying to punish him. I think she got woke up in the middle of the night and there was a misunderstanding, a miscommunication. She just spoke um, probably off the cuff and then realized, oh no, what did I do? I don't think that she's like the villain of the story. Um, First Corinthians chapter seven, starting in verse three, um, the apostle Paul knows how big of an issue the sexual relationship of a husband and a wife can be and is in the majority of relationships. So what he actually does is he writes these few short little verses that I think are profound and have radically, radically shocked and rocked the religious culture of the day. And I want to read these to you, and I'm so glad that God put these in his word. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, The husband should give to his wife her sexual rights. Isn't that interesting? Did you know that for this Greco-Roman culture in the first century when 1 Corinthians is wrote, women do not have sexual rights? So already off the, off the cuff, Paul is challenging and reshaping their view of sexuality. And then he says, and likewise, the wife to her husband. Then he says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, 
but the husband does. And in that culture, that's not a controversial statement. That is, of course. But then what he says next is blows away the cultural conceptions of marriage, mutuality, and sexuality. And he says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I, I don't know if you realize this, but what Paul did is he shattered um, sexual expectations and he put in a marriage, he said, the man is as important as the woman and the woman is as important as the man. Woman, you are not his property. You are both to serve one another first and foremost. You are both responsible to serve and meet the sexual needs of the other. He goes in verse five and he says, do not deprive one another. This is a biblical command. Like, does, does God understand what most couples have to go through in a sexual relationship? Please say yes. He totally gets it, which is why he regularly puts this stuff in his word, because one of the most spiritual things that you can do is have an affectionate relationship with your spouse in and out of the bedroom. He says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Why? So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Is that kind of counterintuitive to what most couples think, right? If you're going to withhold this in your marriage, it should be for a limited time so that you guys can pray. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God gave marriage and put the sexual relationship beautifully and perfectly in this content, context to protect us. And so husbands, we have to protect our wives, and wives, we have to protect our husbands. And in the context of Solomon, I don't believe there was this intentional lack of protection. I just think this girl got woken up, and there's a conflict. But here's what's interesting. Story news of the conflict spread really quickly. Point number two in your notes, what every man needs. Number one, responsiveness. Number two is respect. I've never met. I'm sure you're there. You might be in this room, but I've never met a woman who is like, I want to disrespect my husband, right? Most of the time, disrespect is an accident, it's a repercussion, it's a consequence of something else. The majority of women do not want to disrespect their husband. And Solomon and his bride, what happened, um, apparently made news that evening. Maybe it's possible the daughters of Jerusalem heard what happened, right? And they started telling everybody. We've talked about the daughters of Jerusalem and Song of Solomon. They're like the TMZ girls, really chatty, ch 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 gossipy, 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 right? That's how they seem to be. Maybe Solomon went and he told the watchmen of the city and he said, hey guys, here's what's happened. Kind of having a bad night. And he tells them what happened. Whatever the case, it seems that the watchmen and the daughters of Jerusalem and the city at large know what happens. Now, what happens in this text um, is genuinely uncomfortable for 21st century Americans, and I have to make some, we'll just say, distinctions in your brain so you can get this. The Bible describes what happens in events, but just because the Bible describes something, it does not mean it condones it. Do you understand that? So there are immense atrocities and terrible things that happen in the Bible. And just because it happens, it does not mean that this is from God, what he wants. He's just telling you what is. So this woman leaves in the middle of the night and she's hunting for her husband. And here is what happens. The watchmen found me and they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. So there's two interpretations of this. Number one, which does make some sense here, um, 
if you go back to chapter one of Song of Solomon, she looks at him when they're dating and she says, I will not be like the women who wear veils. Um, I will not be like the prostitutes who throw themselves at you. So what would you think if you are a watchman in the middle of the night and you see this woman with a veil running around shouting for the king wanting to give her body to him? you might be tempted to think she's a prostitute. And so in this culture and at this time, the watchmen probably did what they thought would be right. Um, and I'm not saying it is right, I'm just saying culturally this was, would have been a common thing that, that could have happened. That's, that's one option for, for this. Um, the second option, which again, I don't know which one is more likely, is that they knew exactly who she was. Um, and they did this to defend the king's honor. Nobody treats the king like this. I don't know which one it is. We posited last week that there, it is a plausible scenario that people did not know what the queen looked like because she would wear a veil that only the king would actually know what she looks like. So you might be saying, well, how did they not know she was the queen? Well, she's running around in the middle of the night with a veil on, shouting his name. Like You could see where some miscommunication could actually happen here. And again, even if there was miscommunication, would any God-fearing person condone what the watchman did? Please say no. No, okay, good, we're on the same page. But there is a point that is being made. When you step above the fray of how inappropriate what they did is, there is something that I think is really important. No man is impressed by a woman's dishonor. Sometimes when a woman disrespects her husband, intentionally or unintentionally, there's this thing that can happen where they say, I'm gonna get him back. And I wanna just, ladies, bring you into the mind of other men who, who hear a, a man being disrespected by his wife, here's what they think. I'm so glad I'm not married to that woman. No man is impressed by that. Uh, we go on and we see how the women respond to this. We see how the men respond to this. News has gone public. In verse eight, she says this. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. You gotta just pay attention to this context. You have a woman, the queen, desperate, running around throughout the night, bruised, beaten, veil torn, and the daughters of Jerusalem, she has always been like a mentor to them. Throughout the entire book, she has been saying to them, I adjure you, I adjure you. Um, here's how you're to handle your passions and your desires. And now the woman who has said, I adjure you, and has been teaching them, has now made a pretty big mistake, at least in their eyes. And so she says to them, O oh, daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I'm sick with love. And then the girls respond. We see how the men respond. The watchmen, they're not impressed. They're not pleased. They don't think this is good. And then the women are going to respond. Now, I need to give you some context because let me just read for you. Every single time the daughters of Jerusalem have responded to Solomon and his bride, has it been good or bad? The answer is good. Verse, chapter one, verse four, they say, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Chapter one, verse 11, we will make you ornaments of gold, studded with silver. Chapter three, verse 10, its interior uh, was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. And now they're going to have that tone of judgmentalism that catty women can have. And here's, here's what they say in verse nine. What is your beloved more than any other beloved? almost beautiful among women. Hear the sarcasm, by the way. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? And here's what we see. 
Um, even though in a moment of dishonor and disrespect, you may feel justified, but godly women will not look at you who have just dishonored your husband and say, we respect that. The daughters of Jerusalem actually don't believe what she has done has been good. Now, at this point, let's be fair to the woman, right? She isn't this terrible woman who's done this atrocious, horrible thing, right? It's almost like the news has gotten blown out of control, and there is this deep misunderstanding about what has been happening. And so it's like, almost like in this moment, she realizes, oh my goodness, people are thinking less of my husband because of this we'll say, small accident that happened, and this is blown up. So here's what she does. She goes into hyper-respect mode, and she looks at the daughters of Jerusalem, and she says some really cool things. She says this. My beloved is radiant, which literally means white or glorious, and he is ruddy, meaning he is a manly, rugged man. He is distinguished among 10,000. It's almost like she's realizing, oh no, you thought I was disrespecting him? No, 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 no. Let me tell you, my husband will not be publicly disrespected. Um, and I wanna make sure that if I have disrespected him, that I'm gonna make sure everybody in my presence understands my deep honor and respect that I have for my husband. Verse 11, his head is the finest gold, which in the symbolism means that he is incredibly wise. His locks are wavy black as a raven. I mean, I just, I imagine she loves hearing this supernatural wisdom that God has given this young man. And as he tells her stories of adventures and insights into the stars and creation and God and the word of God, and I imagine she was enamored in him and just deeply respected him. I mean, wouldn't you want to sit down and have awesome conversations with the most wise man that has ever lived? And this woman believes that he is that. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. He's not a man who is prone to intoxication. He's a clear-headed man, very sober, and his eyes are beautiful. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. This is where his smell or cologne would come from, if you will. She loved putting her cheek up to his. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. She wants to kiss him. And then she starts talking about his body. Basically, she saw a picture of me, and then she's going to describe that. So she says... His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. I'm gonna change that word, just put bedazzled. Can you put that in your Bibles? His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance, it's like Lebanon choice as the cedars. He is tall, he is strong. The best cedar came from Lebanon and it happens to be likely where she's from. He's like home to me. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. DOJ, daughters of Jerusalem, you listen to me. If there is even one ounce of communication from me to you that he is anything less than a man set apart from 10,000, deeply respectable and desirable by me, then I have misled you and I am wrong. And then she says, this is my beloved. The word beloved here is um, a noun version of dode. It's a very affectionate term um, of a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband. And dode is the Hebrew word for sexual love. And so it's a word that is reserved for somebody who has deep romantic attraction and affection for somebody. And he says to her, this is my doted one and this is my raya. This is my friend. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, drop the mic. 
Is the point made? If I have made any issue, any communication that I do not have deep honor and respect for him, let me set the record straight once and for all. And I think she does that. A couple things I want you to notice here. She is ferociously protective of Solomon's reputation. What are the most important things to a man? I love this. His woman, his job, and his name. His woman, his job, and his name. And she understands that I don't want to be a roadblock that lessens my man's name publicly. Number two, I think this is really meaningful as you understand how she responds to him sexually in their marriage. Her appreciation of his body is not primarily sexual or visual, but emotional. She responds to the parts of his body that provide leadership, protection, and provision for her. Isn't that interesting? He, when he sees her body, responds to her sheer beauty. She responds to his emotions and his affection and his tenderness. Chapter six, verse one, this is where our text this morning is gonna end. The daughters of Jerusalem respond and here's what they say. Where has your beloved gone, almost beautiful among women? What was, and the last time they spoke a sarcastic term is now a genuine term. Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Women love, deep down in their hearts, to hear another woman honor and respect her husband. This will make younger women, the daughters of Jerusalem, these young virgins, respect Solomon's wife, the queen, because younger women want to see an older woman who respects her husband. And once she, the daughter of Solomon, set the record straight, everybody saw it clearly. So I want to close, and I want to share with you just, you know, why is this text even here? I mean, why is God doing this? And, and I, I want to come back to this basic point and say, husbands, how you love your wives is one of the most spiritual things that you can do. And wives, how you respect and respond to your husbands is one of the most spiritual things that you can do. Because in your relationship, when God made marriage, he made marriage obviously to make you happy and to make kids and to make the world a better place because healthy marriages make healthy people statistically, right? But marriage points to something so much bigger. And ladies, I wanna just encourage you for a moment because what you get to communicate and the way you respond and respect your husband in and outside of the marriage bedroom is you get to communicate and give to your kids and grandkids and friends and family members and the people you mentor and disciple, you get to give them a beautiful picture of the bride of Jesus Christ, which is the church. And Jesus is faithful to the church and he is transforming the church and he is purifying the church and the church as we get more mature is learning how to follow him and honor Jesus and, and obey him and respect him and in the same way, wives, you have this unique opportunity to show forth to everyone in your life a micro picture of what the church is supposed to be like to Jesus. Broken, struggling, imperfect, but striving to be more like Christ. You get to show the whole world, look, my marriage isn't perfect, I make mistakes. I think this is one of the beautiful things about this text is that sometimes there's just junk in a marriage and it happens and you talk about it and you deal with it and you move on. But one of the realities here is that this wife, you, um, if you are married, you get the privilege to show forth just a small picture of what the church is supposed to be like to Jesus Christ. Pure, responsive, respectful. And we get to the end of um, Ephesians chapter five 
And uh, the Apostle Paul talks about leaving and cleaving, and here's how he ends it. This is just amazing to me. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says this, the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Like, your marriage exists to show forth the beauty of Jesus and the purity and the responsiveness of the church. This is one of the big reasons why your marriage exists. And then he says this, let each one of you men love his wife as himself. And then here's how he ends. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Like you break all the marriage advice down that the Apostle Paul gives and you boil it down to its most fundamental essence. It's this, husbands, show forth to the world how Jesus has loved the church by dying and serving your wife. And wives, show forth to the world what the, how the church is supposed to respond to Jesus by respecting your husbands. And then when your kids come to you and your grandkids and your neighbors and your friends and they want to know what is the church like, you can say, hey, you know how I'm like an imperfect wife? You know how like I really struggle? Um, that's sort of like how the church is to Jesus. And people can say, hey, I've been burned by churches. I don't like churches. People in churches are mean and they're weird and all this other stuff. And we are, right? But you can say, like, that's sort of like what it's like to be a wife. We're imperfect and yet we are pursuing to respond to our husband. Now, the challenge is with most husbands is we're not really good at being like Jesus. <laughs> I want to close with this encouragement. Um, dudes, if your wife fails to respect you and to respond to you, is that a legit reason to be angry and to withhold affection and tenderness and engagement and passion? And the answer is no. You cannot control what your wife does or does not do, but you will stand before God accountable for whether or not you were tender to her affectionate with her, engaged with her, and passionate with her. And so I would look at everybody and say, if you are a wife whose husband is not those things, um, whether or not he is, our joy is to be respectful to him. And this is the challenge of marriage is that somehow as we look at our spouses, we look at our relationships, all that other stuff, is we're married to imperfect people. Don't give me an amen because we all know it's true. We're made imperfect people and somehow we have to extend grace after grace after grace after grace because they fail and we fail and grace becomes the center point of any healthy marriage. But here's what's worth it. We get to show forth micro pictures of Jesus and the church to a watching world and that is one of the greatest privileges that we have. That is why he made marriage. That is why he is redeeming men and women and bringing them together in the context of marriage is to show forth Jesus and the church visibly and it gives our words, the gospel, so much more depth. So I wanna take a moment, and I wanna pray two weeks out from being done with Song of Solomon, and uh, I don't know about you, but I am encouraged to be way more kind, way more tender, way more affectionate, way more engaged, and way more passionate. I hope you are too. Let's pray together. Um, Father, first and foremost, I wanna just say thank you for Jesus, and thank you that... Um, I know that every man and woman in this room, we fall massively short of what your word calls us to be. We are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. And God, I wanna just say thank you for being so gracious, so patient with us. And Lord, that same grace that you give us, may we continually give it to our spouse. May we forgive as we've been forgiven. May we love as we have been loved. May men sacrifice and may women respect and may marriages be built that week in, week out, year in, year out, more fully, more compellingly, more beautifully reflect Christ and, and the church. 
And God, may in a world where marriages are going crazy, may even just the marriages at Village Church be a bright, shining light um, in a crazy, dark world. God, thank you that all of this is possible through Jesus, who died for us, has forgiven us, redeems us, reshapes us, and reforms us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.